So reading from um, Acts chapter 13 from verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. The city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. Thank you, Susie. So what is going on in this passage? Well, the, the book of uh, Acts that was authored by Luke, he's showing us a pattern that emerged as the early church shared the message of Jesus' resurrection. So as they were going about sharing the message, there's typically two responses. There was either acceptance and praise, or there was rejection and opposition. Um, and so, Ginger, if you could put it on to uh, where it says Pisidian. Sorry, we're having technical difficulties. Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. Thank you. Um, so that's just kind of a visual breakdown of this text. Uh, if, you, if you see it, the me- they preached the message, some accepted it, and some rejected it. So clearly here, Luke is trying to show us something. Um, and unfortunately, this pattern often ends in opposition. But again, as I was reading this passage, the thing that came up in my mind is, but why? Why? What is it about this message that brings opposition? I, I just, Why? Um, and again, I think this message can, can show us why. And I think uh, it can show us three things, you know, the traditional three-point format here. Uh, it can show us the, the what of opposition, the why of opposition, and the how of opposition. And I know that that doesn't exactly make grammatical sense, but bear with me. I'm American, and I don't English well. You can ask Penelope, okay? So go ahead. So the first is the what of opposition. What, what is it about this message that is just bringing animosity and division and and even violence. What what is it about this message? Well, I think the key to this what is found in verse 46 of of chapter 13. Notice Paul and Barnabas tell the Jewish unbelievers that because they rejected their message, sorry, that because they they rejected their message, um, they declared themselves unworthy of eternal life. Now, that term eternal life actually doesn't carry the same emotional weight or impact that it would for us as it did for, for um, Paul and Barnabas's ancient Jewish audience. So for the Jews, this term, eternal life, actually had a huge religious and cultural significance. Um, typically, when I hear this term, I think of this ethereal domain, you know, with clouds and blue skies and angels and playing harps, but that's not what this term means at all. Um, in fact, the Greek term here actually is translated the life of the age. And again, for the Jewish people, this, this was a huge term. This was a, a huge thing that had religious meaning and cultural meaning. And so in the ancient Jewish mind, there was actually two historical periods or ages. So there was the present age and there was the age to come. So the present age was the age with pain, suffering, and strife. But what they were longing for was the age to come. Um, It would be where perfect justice was doled out. There would be peace and harmony all over creation. There would be no more wars, no more death, no more disease, no more COVID, thankfully. Um, And so that's what they were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the ultimate restoration on life on earth. Um, It wasn't this, what what I typically think of, but it was this. And if you don't know what that is, that's St. Ab's head. It's just a beautiful place. It's what they're looking forward to is the restoration of the entire world. That, That was their hope. And so that's what Paul and Barnabas were trying to get across to them. 
You know, they were, they were trying to let them know, look, this age to come was here. Uh, with Jesus' resurrection, that age had been inaugurated. Um, everything that they were hoping for and they longed for was here. And that's what they were uh, telling them. Like, look, Jesus' resurrection has brought the age to come. All you have to do is believe, have faith. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to do good deeds. You just have to have faith. And this is also our Christian hope today. You know, our Christian hope, we, we live in the in-between. So if you remember from last week, Luke mentioned we live in the already but not yet. We're, we're stuck in the middle between the present age and the age to come. And so our Christian hope, like the Jewish people, ancient Jewish people, is that we, would, we look forward to the ultimate re, uh, restoration of the world, the, the final resurrection. That's what we're looking forward to. Again, it's not that ethereal domain, but a real restoration of the world. And so this goes to the why of opposition. Why? Why would they reject this? this? For the Jewish people, this is everything they hoped for and longed for. Why in the world would they reject this message? And, you know, I think it's interesting. Look at who, who rejected it. It was the Jewish people. It wasn't the Gentiles. It wasn't the pagans. It was the Jewish people. It was the church people, the people that should have known better. Um, and the question is, why? Well, I think uh, the why is in verse 45. So notice it says that when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Now, on the surface, what it seems like is that they were filled with jealousy because, you know, the apostles were getting so much more attention. But what many commentators actually point out is that this term translated jealousy here actually is normally translated zeal or a zealousness. So it wasn't a jealousy from a lack of attention. It was a zealousness for God's law. That's what they were really, really going for. It was almost a righteous anger for God's law. And so one commentator explains it this way. He said, the Jews were committed to the Old Testament law. It was their life, learning the law, trying to figure out what the law meant, obeying the law. Paul said in his sermon the previous Sabbath, through him, Jesus, everyone who, be- who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. And let's be honest, they, they rejected it because they loved their law. They loved their traditions. They loved their heritage more than they loved the God that it pointed to. And honestly, it makes sense. Uh, I mean, the Jewish people, they had died for this law. They had, they had lived for this law. I mean, as that commentator said, this was their life. Um, and basically now two, two guys come in, two Jewish guys come in and say, hey, guess what? You don't have to keep the law anymore. Um, not only that, but the Gentiles get to participate in your birthright in the age to come without keeping the law, without converting to Judaism. To the Jews, they probably thought this was borderline blasphemous. Um, but what's interesting is I think the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, actually are warning to us today as believers. You know, are we more in love with the Bible and our theology and doctrine than we are with the God that that's supposed to point to? So, I mean, look at what Jesus says in, in John chapter 5. He, he reserved his strictest scoldings and displeasure for those who were theologically orthodox but spiritually dead. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me. And so we should be asking ourselves the same question. Are we trying to earn God's favor by our doctrinal correctness? Are we trying to earn God's favor um, by, by our orthodoxy? You know, would we rather have that doctrine, or would we rather have the person that that doctrine is supposed to point towards? Are we in love with a person, or are we in love with ideas? 
The American spiritual writer and pastor A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring us to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God. So the Bible was never meant to be the end. It was meant to be the end, point to the end, uh, means to the end, excuse me, an intimate relationship with a person, a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But now we get to the how of opposition. How did Paul and Barnabas respond to this opposition? Well, I think they responded in two main ways. First, they spoke boldly, and here's the key, out of love. And second, they did the deeds of the coming kingdom. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But, you know, when I first read this text, I, uh, I was like, man, these guys did not pull any punches. I mean, this, this seems incredibly harsh to me. Uh, it made me uncomfortable. I was like, you know, this isn't gentle. This doesn't seem kind. You know, what, what, what's going on here? Um, I mean, look at what they say. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Those sound like fighting words to me. Um, but I think a key here is something that Timothy Keller has said. He said the opposite of love isn't anger, but it's actually indifference. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are not doing here. They're not being indifferent. Paul and Barnabas had a deep love for their Jewish people. Um, Paul even goes so far to say in the book of Romans that he would rather be cut off from God if that meant that more of his Jewish uh, brothers and sisters would, would be saved. So he says this in Romans 9, 1 through 3. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. Um, excuse me, for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. So again, this was a boldness driven out of a deep love for people, not out of arrogance. And as, uh, as I've been working on my apprenticeship here, I've actually been meeting with Tom Bramire. If you know Tom, he's a great guy. He's incredibly humble and also incredibly smart. Um, but he recommended I read a speech given by the German theologian uh, Helmut Thielicke, I think is how you pronounce it. Again, I'm American, so forgive me. Um, but the, the speech is called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians. And basically, Thielicke explains this. He says, many young theologians or young people that go to seminary, they come back to their home church, and they've got a head full of knowledge, but a heart that hasn't spiritually matured enough to handle that. Um, and he makes this really insightful statement that oftentimes love and truth are not held together well. And so I think that's a challenge for us, and myself included. You know, we need to learn how to be bold out of love, not out of, not out of arrogance. You know, we need to be able to use the truth to heal, not to wound. But what did they do, secondly? They responded by doing deeds of the coming kingdom. Now, what in the world do I mean by this? If you look in chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas were spreading the message, um, they were, God confirmed their message with signs and, and wonders. And in C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, Lewis actually explains that these biblical miracles or signs and wonders were actually small tastes of the new creation, the new age. And so he explains it like this. Nature is fond of false dawns, of precursors. So here also we get law before gospel, animal sacrifices foreshadowing the great sacrifice of God to God, the Baptist before the Messiah, and those miracles of the new creation which come before the resurrection. So the signs and wonders were meant to point towards the confirmation of the message. You know, they were not only speaking boldly, but their deeds actually confirmed their message. 
And I think this has some application for us here. And I don't think that it's we should be performing signs and wonders. <laughs> uh, I don't want to exclude that. You never know what God's going to do. Um, but if you remember Pat's talk from way back earlier in the book of Acts, he mentioned that we can practice the resurrection or the new age by, by loving one another well. You know, we can practice the resurrection by pursuing justice and love in our world in both small and big ways. And so I've had actually multiple discussions with people here at Hope City. You know, why, what, what drew you to Hope City? What do you, what do you enjoy about it? And hands down, the most common thing I've heard is that it's just people cared. Um, that's why I came, that's why I personally tried to come back is people cared. Um, you know, Hope City cared for me very well the first time I was here in Edinburgh, and, and that's, that's why I wanted to come back. And so I think that goes to show you just how uh, powerful, you know, small deeds of love and justice really are. And uh, I'm going to quote the great Gandalf here um, from the first Hobbit movie. Gandalf says this, Many believe it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It's the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. So we don't have to perform these huge, magnificent miracles. We just have to love people well. But let's go back to the original question. Why opposition? Why is there so much opposition to this message? Well, N.T. Wright, I think, can explain it way better than I can. Um, And N.T. Wright says this. If we really worked at trying to be for our world what the apostles were for their Jewish world, things might change. The gospel might come alive. Vested interests would be challenged, and they would bite back. As we go about spreading the message and practicing the resurrection, most likely we're going to face some type of opposition similar to how Paul and Barnabas faced opposition from their unbelieving Jews, Jewish brothers and sisters. You know, and as we spread the message, we're going to confront social systems and we're going to confront ideas that are contradictory to the coming kingdom. And so it makes sense that we might have some opposition. Now, this opposition may be small. Let's be honest, we're not exactly facing opposition like Paul and and Barnabas were back then. Um, But nevertheless, it'll be an opposition. You know, it could be... uh, could be being ridiculed at your work or ridiculed at school. It could be, you know, you, you lose your job for your faith or that you get passed over for a job promotion for your faith. I, I don't know. But I do know that if we faithfully go about spreading the message and living the gospel, we will face some type of small oppositions. Now, for those of you who are unbelievers, uh, I'm sure that hearing this is, is not attractive because I know it's not attractive to me. In fact, it's kind of repulsive. Um, just being completely honest. But, but I would encourage you to look closely at the resurrection because that is our hope and that is the beauty of, of, G, of the message of Jesus is that ultimately there will be a final resurrection and everything will be put right. And that's how I'm able to endure these small oppositions um, that I face. But for believers, how are we to overcome opposition? And I think this is powerful. They spit in his face, and they struck him, and then they crucified him. We can endure opposition because ultimately Jesus endured opposition for us. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you endured um, to provide a way for us to have a relationship with you. We don't want to take that for granted. Um, Whenever we face small oppositions, Help us to have the strength to endure um, and help us to love our enemies as you loved yours. 
Help us not only to spread the message with our mouths, but with our actions. And Lord, uh, give us a sense of your presence as we continue to seek and know you. We, we ask this in your name. Amen. And I think we're going to Datsy.